This is Sustainable-ish with me, Jen Gale, and it is great to have you here. Listen in each week and I hope I can brighten up your day and leave you feeling inspired and excited about the magnificent human being that you are and the power that you have to create a better world. You won't find any expectations of eco-warrior perfection here. There's no obligatory tree hugging. You won't be judged if you drive a car, wear leather shoes, or eat the odd pack of Haribo every now and then. I'll be sharing my own gems of wisdom for sustainable-ish living, and I also relentlessly scour the internet for people doing amazing things to tackle the big environmental issues that we're facing, and I hound them until they agree to come on and inspire us all with their fabulousness and the positive change that they're making. So sit back, listen in, and get ready to change the world one baby step at a time. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Sustainable-ish podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Now kicking off with an apology for the distinct lack of any kind of uh, podcast episode last week. The long jubilee weekend seemed to sneak up on me and catch me by surprise, meaning that I couldn't get everything, all the ducks in a row to hit publish. So this episode is a week late coming out, but it's an absolute corker and well worth waiting for. I hope you will agree. So in this episode, I am chatting to Helen Coffey, who is the travel editor for The Independent, uh, which is a broadsheet newspaper here in the UK, and also the author of a new book that has just come out called Zero Altitude, How I Learned to Fly Less and Travel More in which Helen documents her journey. That's a real pun and a cliche in one go, isn't it? But um, documents her decision to try and continue to do her job as a travel editor, but without flying and all with a pandemic thrown into the mix. So it's an absolutely brilliant book. I say this to Helen and I'm not saying it just to kind of uh, kiss ass. It, I genuinely really enjoyed reading it. It was incredibly readable. Um, I read it in a weekend amongst juggling lots of other things and uh, felt like I really learned stuff as well. So that's always a great thing from a book, isn't it? Having that smug feeling of like, I've learned some stuff and also really inspired me. I, I talked about this after chatting to Georgina Wilson-Powell about her um, eco-conscious travel book um, a few episodes ago. And I'll link to that episode in the show notes if anyone wants to go back and watch it. But really opened my eyes to the huge potential that there is for traveling internationally and certainly around Europe uh, without having to resort to flying and to do that in a much lower carbon impact way. So it inspired me, it entertained me, it educated me. What more can you ask for from a book? So without further ado, um, here you go. Enjoy. Hi, Helen. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks so much for having me. I say this every single time, but I am really excited to chat to you. Um, and your book, we're recording this on, what is it, Wednesday the 25th. Your book is coming out tomorrow. So we've just been having a chat about quite how nerve wracking that is. <laughs> yes. I mean, it is a really daunting experience as a first time author. I'm sure, you know, as a third time, fifth time author, but I think especially when it's your first book, you have this kind of mild panic that you're a total fraud and that everyone's going to find you out when they, uh, when they read the book if they read the book um, yes perhaps no one will no they I'm sure some people will who aren't my mother but um <laughs> so thank you for being one of the first actually Jen yes so the book is and, and I I will show this to the camera but nobody else can be able to see because it's a podcast um zero altitude how I learned to fly less and travel more and I said to you before we hit record I'm very good at uh, getting uh, sort of climatey books, feeling very earnest, feeling like I ought to read them, getting about a third of the way through um, and being distracted by something else. Um, but this book, I actually, not only did I read it cover to cover, but I did it in a weekend. Like I absolutely loved it. So easy to read, but at the same time, like I learned stuff. Do you know what I mean? I was like, <laughs> No, that was really the entire goal. <laughs> I haven't paid her to say this. This is wonderful. Oh, amazing. So um, you're the travel editor for The Independent. Yeah. So travel, obviously, like a big part of your life and travel certainly now in our sort of, you know, the way we live now feels very synonymous with flying. 
yeah, talk to us about your sort of eco-epiphany or whatever it was around kind of flying and um, what made you suddenly want to sort of think about how you might be able to fly less? Well, first of all, can I just say, I love the word eco-epiphany. I know, it's not mine. I wish it was. (laughs) What a portmanteau. I wish I'd used it in the book. Um, That is fabulous. So I would say I had my eco-epiphany back in 2019. So it was it was that year, I'm sure you will remember, when there was such a lot of momentum building around sustainability. Um, it was everywhere in the headlines. You know, we had Greta Thunberg was like, you know, Mrs. Household name on all the magazine covers. Extinction Rebellion was really drawing in like this groundswell of people that weren't just who you'd normally think of as traditional climate activists, but actually loads of regular people and mm. their kids. And, and finally, that it did feel like this turning tide in terms of, you know, in the popular mainstream mindset, oh, this is really important and it really needs to change. And then flying was kind of part of that conversation because that's when the, the Swedish kind of flick scan movement um, really kind of started gaining traction and lots of people were writing about it. And so obviously, as a travel journalist, I saw stuff about this and I thought, oh, OK, we should we should cover this as well. For so people I, who, who that might have passed them by, can you just explain that Swedish, I can't say the word, flickscam? I mean, I haven't spoken to a Swedish person, so that's how I'm pronouncing it. Sometimes I try and pretend I'm Swedish and go flickscam, mm-hmm. but I have no yeah. idea if that's more um, accurate or not. Um, more insulting yeah. or not for a Swedish yeah, person. Exactly. Uh, you're quite right. I take for granted a lot of this stuff. Yes, if, you, if that did pass you by, um, it was this idea in Sweden that it translates literally uh, to flight shame those two words together in Swedish. The idea being that at this point in the climate crisis, and I will call it a crisis, flying is something we should feel a little bit ashamed about doing. So I think for a long time, it's something we've associated with being very aspirational. And, you know, lots of people would share their pictures from the airport, from the plane, look, I'm about to go off on holiday. Lovely, lovely. And they said, no, actually, you should, it's something that if you're doing it, you should feel a little bit kind of shady about it, a little bit grubby, kind of, oh, I don't want anyone to know I'm doing this. So it wasn't really about making other people feel ashamed. It was more about how you should feel in in kind of participating in this not great activity. Um, And it was taken up by quite a lot of prominent Swedes, including Greta Thunberg's mother, the famous opera singer, um, I'm going to say her name wrong, Melina Ehrman, is that how you say her name? I will I will say yes. I'm sorry if I'm wrong um, <laughs> to her mother. Uh, yeah. So, and, and I think lots of things often take off in Sweden first because they, they're early adopters in that kind of space. Um, but it was gaining traction elsewhere as well. Um, and actually, it had a really big impact in Sweden. So it did see domestic flights certainly really plummet um, and train travel go up. So it was a great representation of people say, oh, but what does it really matter what I do as an individual? And it was like, well, no, actually, if lots of people kind of get on that bandwagon, you can have a big impact. And airlines were getting really worried about it, actually, at the time. And so it had kind of spread a bit, I found when I researched, um, over to the UK as well. And there'd been a campaign set up called Flight Free UK, with the idea being to convince people to pledge for a whole year not to take a flight. So what you would do, it's almost like a news resolution. You'd sign up on a website and say, I'm not going to take a flight this year. I interviewed Anna um, from Flight Free 2020. Must have been pre-COVID I would think because I sort of very proudly signed up to it and things as well and then obviously and then and then a lot of people by about April were going this is going to be a really easy year to be (laughs) (laughs) exactly so I I ended up doing the same thing because I yeah I spoke to Anna Hughes she's the director of that campaign um, interviewed her and she put me in touch with lots of other pledges and I interviewed them just for a feature um, because I was like oh this is really interesting it was seen as such an outside idea at that point in this country certainly and it's funny you know how these things happen I, I I'm used to talking to people in in within the course of my job for things but they were just to a man slash woman very compelling so all incredibly passionate and had this there was this underlying sense of urgency I felt about we really need to change but without any kind of judgment on their part or sort of there was no martyrdom about it you know like oh, I'm amazing you know 
occasionally you can get in a conversation with perhaps a vegan who uh, seems a bit holier than thou and that puts people off you know that never has a good impact I think if if people come across that way but none of them did and then it just kind of planted this little seed in me of like oh that's very interesting and it just kept growing and I kept thinking about it and I thought oh wouldn't it say something if I as a a travel editor at a a national publication said I was going to do this um for a year and I yes I signed up in in 2020 the idea being it would just be one year look at all the amazing travel I've done this one year oh I could write a book about it great that will be that'll be that done (laughs) wash my hands of it and as you just said Jen that was a very uh well, it was weird because in one way, lots of people said to me, oh, you've picked a really good year for it. And I was actually like, well, no, I haven't. Because the point was to do loads of exciting travel, slow travel and show how good it could be. And in fact, that's been almost impossible. Yeah. So it was very, very challenging, actually. Did you have to run that past your bosses first to say, right, guys, I know I'm your travel editor. I know I'm probably, you know, I've got to go here, there and everywhere, um, you know, uh, not not going to fly. Is that all right? Like, did, did you have that conversation with them? Uh, yes, I did. And I am very lucky in that um, I work for The Independent, which um, if you if you don't read it, I would say is is very kind of, well, it is independent, but left leaning in terms of sustainability and climate and they really wanted to take a big stance for 2020 actually Um, and we had a campaign called 20 pledges for 2020 uh, sort of inspired by first of all me deciding to take that pledge Um, and so they got loads of other journalists to go oh I'm going to stop eating meat I'm going to try and make my home more efficient I'm going to drive an electric car all these brilliant things and so they were really they were incredibly supportive but I I have to say I'm sure if I'd worked elsewhere at most other publications that might have been a much more difficult conversation to have so I do feel fortunate for that yeah so you were saying and I and I sort of then interrupted you to get you to explain the the flick scam that you know there was a lot of as you say it felt like there was this real momentum wasn't there behind sustainability and climate and the climate movement and then and and you'd heard about this flight free movement and you'd interviewed people you thought ah awesome I'm gonna have a go at this for 2020 and then obviously the world stopped slash turned upside down um, in March. So did you get to have any regular, I guess, air quotes, normal slow travel experiences before March or not? Um, I managed to fit in one, which was um, my trip to Scotland on the Caledonian sleeper. I'm went so jealous. To... I really want to do that. Oh, please do it. It's so nice. It really, I mean, what people always say is it's expensive and Mm. they are not wrong. It is expensive. Um, I'm not going to make any bones about that. But um, it is such a wonderful way to travel, you know, really nice little sleeping berths. Because anyone that's been on a sleeper train will know that actually they can vary quite wildly in terms of quality and comfort. Oh, right. Okay. Um, That I would say is on the upper, upper end of things, the more luxe end. And yeah, it's very sweet. And there's a really nice little breakfast dining car where, you, you know, you can get served Eggs Royale on a train. It oh, feels oh, so decadent. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that was really nice, actually. It's such a good experience. Um, and you kind of wake up and you're in the middle of the highlands. And um, yeah, it's just a magical way to travel. That was such a good first taste of slow travel in comparison to when I've flown to Scotland before. Obviously, it is faster, but the amount of time you spend kind of getting to the airport, waiting at the airport, coming off the other side, you know, you're never, you're not in the middle of the city. So you then have to get to where you want to go. I just, I thought it was a vastly improved way of getting there. Yeah. Mm. I just realized we probably jumped ahead a little bit. And again, I kind of assume that everybody knows flying is bad. Um, but <laughs> some, um, some st- have you got some stats you can throw out as in terms of the impact of flying and maybe why we should be thinking about reducing it? Oh, that was a bit mean, wasn't it? I was like, well, I'm like, where are my stats? Where are my stats? So, fly. So this is pre pre COVID because we're still not back to normal air quotes normal levels of flying. But in 2019 and before that, uh, flying and it's about. 860 million metric tons of carbon dioxide per year which is hard to visualize it's a lot 
as a whole, aviation was responsible for around 2% of all total carbon emissions um, in 2019 and prior to that. And 2% doesn't sound like very much. And I think that's a bit of a struggle. Mm. Um, but one of the things about it is that, well, A, it's, it's on this kind of course for massive growth, or it was before COVID, and that will happen again unless, unless things change. That's what all the airlines want. The government in various countries are helping them do that by by giving the tax breaks and all kinds of incentives to keep them going. So that's bad for a start. It's going to get bigger and bigger and bigger unless something changes. And the other thing is it's a massive source of inequality when it comes to emissions. So, you know, lots of things emit, but we're all we're all getting something out of that. But flying is this is what I really got hammered home to me by talking to lots of climate scientists. It's an elite activity. It is not something that most people are doing. We feel like it is because we live in a very wealthy country that is, in fact, the biggest in terms of people taking international flights. So Brits were the highest proportion of international flyers of any nationality in 2018, which is a really wild stat. I mean, it's partly because, you know, things like in the US, they won't travel internationally so much. They'll be flying a lot across the country ditto China but equally that I mean I would say that's quite a shocking statistic but in fact it, it's it's something that most of the world's population will have never got on a plane not once in their entire life yeah. isn't um, it something like 10 percent of only 10 percent of the global population have ever flown or will fly yeah it's very it's very small it's not even like oh it's about half it's really mm. it's in the minority and yet the people that feel the effects of climate change the most are probably the people who are least likely to be flying on a regular basis because they're people um, often in developing countries that are already suffering really at the sharp end of the effects of climate change whereas we're quite insulated for the moment so that's why I think it's really important to be aware of and also there's just not um, and this is explored a lot more in the book but there's not the tech there to decarbonize flying and there's lots of talk about that. And especially airlines obviously want to present it as if, no, no, we've got all these solutions, but none of them are real solutions. They're not solutions that could possibly be scaled up in the time frame that we have to make the change to hit our climate targets for, you know, 2050. And um, if you're not aware, is this year around everything is convalescing, like, oh, this is when we need to be net zero. And it's, it just can't happen. Yeah. unless the number of flights goes down year on year. Um, and that's one of the things I really loved about the book is it was not only was it really lovely to, to hear your experiences because you share some of the journeys that you've done, but you do really dive into this nitty gritty of like, so so what does the future of flight look like? What What is, I keep hearing sustainable aviation fuel, what does that actually mean and how sustainable, you know? And I think, like I said, I felt like I was learning something at the same time as having a great read. So what, what did you discover about the, the future of flight? Because I know one of the, without getting too technical, but the one of the IPCC reports that came out earlier this year was saying, you know, we have a lot of the technology we need to, to reach net zero. Aviation is probably one of the, the few places where we don't yet have the technology. What is in development and like, how long do we need to wait before we can fly guilt free? Oh, it's really hard to say not like it's not going to happen in the short term mm. so I think the the kind of the thing with the biggest potential if you're looking long term for actual kind of carbon neutral flights is probably hydrogen um and there is lots of kind of R&D and, and money being spent on it but the problem is it, it's the one that almost has the most obstacles in the way because it needs massive infrastructure changes for airports all across the world for hydrogen being stored, for the kind of planes that you need, you can't really put it in the planes that exist at the moment. So I think, you know, give it 50 plus years, that's where development will happen, in, in my opinion. I mean, I'm not, I'm not an engineer, but that, from the research I've done, that seems the most likely. But it cannot be done in time um, for reaching net zero. That's the issue. And it's so expensive. And the problem is, Airlines still don't have real incentive to change and spend money on that because their businesses, they're all about the bottom line. At the moment, they're still not being forced to change fast enough by any kind of legislation in any country. So why would you? I mean, it, 
you almost can't blame them because until a gun's put to their head, like they're going to voluntarily make less money, <laughs> you know, if they don't have to. Because um, am I right in saying that at the moment there is one of the reasons that um, air companies uh, are able to to sort of do all these really cheap flights is because there is no tax on aviation fuel. Yeah, so- exactly. There's there's no tax on kerosene. It, there's no other form of transport that gets that tax break <laughs> other than aviation. Um, Which and feels it's such mad. a it's mad. back to front, you know, when we really need to be subsidising and encouraging people to be using trains, to be making trains cheaper. You know, the, the, the fact that this still exists just feels madness. Like, I, I don't... And, and incredibly frustrating. And I mean, I wrote to my, um, I must have, I must have signed a petition. I'm very good at signing petitions that sent a letter automatically to my MP. And I think it was around the frequent flyer levy. And the guff I got back in terms of, you know, well, we can't possibly deprive people of their flights. You know, as, as you say, as if it's this, it's a very elite activity, but it's become a very, uh, we're very defensive of our our right to fly almost, aren't we? Um, I mean, I was talking to somebody in my group and she said um, a group of work colleagues were going to Milan for the day because it was 19 quid return. And you you kind of feel like you can't, you know, we always talk about being the fun sponges and, you know, being the one, oh, does anybody want to go to London for the day? Instead, it'll be 120 quid return. You know, (laughs) like you, you can't, like, what can you do? It's so hard. And that's the thing, it's, it's, falsely cheap it doesn't Mm. reflect in any way how much it should cost and particularly the environmental cost it doesn't reflect that and it makes it very hard to say to people you shouldn't do this that's one of the things actually like you know I talked to all these people working in kind of policy and lobbying around this and and they said you know much better than kind of telling people you shouldn't do this would be for the market to do that itself, as in if something costs enough money, if flying costs what it used to cost, people fly less. It's a very, you know, but they don't feel deprived because, you know, 30 years ago, we didn't feel deprived if we weren't going off for a city break every few weeks, did we? I mean, because it just wasn't, it wasn't the culture, it was too expensive to do that. And that's fine. And you accept that. But if it's available, and it's cheap, of course, people want to do it. I understand that. And it's really hard sell to be like, oh, yeah, but wouldn't you prefer to spend 10 times as much money to go somewhere not very sunny and it's probably going to (laughs) rain? Yeah, it's a difficult sell. It is. (laughs) So talk to us about, you know, get us inspired about some of the adventures that you had, because a couple of episodes ago, I interviewed um, Georgina Wilson-Powell, who she's the editor of Pebble magazine, um, but she's just bought a book out called Eco-Conscious Travel Guide, I think. And there's like 30 European train trips in there. And as somebody who, you know, had sort of resigned myself almost to sort of damp, you know, summer holidays in the caravan with the children because I didn't want to, couldn't cope with the guilt, I think, of flying. This massively opened my eyes, like, oh God, going abroad doesn't equal flying. Do you know, like we can get abroad and we can have all these amazing, wonderful experiences in a lower carbon way. So can you share some of those with you? Because I know you did you did some, didn't you? Yeah, definitely. And actually, once you start researching, it is very exciting, the kind yeah. of the opportunities and, and the prospects that you have. Um, weirdly, it's almost that thing of, decision paralysis or fatigue you know when you have too much choice you feel overwhelmed actually naturally opting for slow travel cuts down your options but in such a way that I think it can be helpful because you're like oh okay I've got this much time to play with where could I get to where could I go and and we're very lucky specifically in Europe in that we do have this amazing train network that covers the entire continent and often very quickly, and particularly now in Spain and France, their high-speed rail networks are really good. Yeah, um, I, saw, so, I saw an article recently, and I don't know if it's about ones that are, it might have been in the Independent, about um, like seven new high-speed networks that are opening up across Europe. And I don't know that they're all open yet, but they're, they're in the pipeline. And yeah, it was just like, wow, this looks amazing. Yeah, it's really cool, right? Because it's suddenly cutting down. I took like two days, two days ago, a few days ago anyway the train from Barcelona to Paris and it takes six and a half hours on Mm. the fast train which is very fast I mean it's like 
you can be back in London the same day. And as you then. say, you, with the trains, you tend to go from city centre to city centre rather than, you know, we've all done that. Uh, you're, you're flying into, I don't know, uh, even if you think people coming from coming to the UK might think, oh, Stansted, London, lovely. Actually, it's yeah. a journey to get back into London or, you know, um, uh, so you're kind of there when you arrive. And also, I mean, I love travelling by train, even just within the UK, because it's my me time. I get to sit there with a hot cup of tea. I get to read a book. I get to listen to a podcast. Nobody's annoying me. <laughs> well, maybe the, the the guy over the way who's snoring or whatever. But do you know, like, it's it's a it is a, a different way of traveling, isn't it, compared to the sort of stress and hustle and bustle, I guess, of, of a, an airport and check ins and all those sorts of things. Yeah, I definitely think so. It's just so much more chilled out in general. And yeah, just a really, a really nice break from life. And not, I really do associate airports with stress. And I did long before this happened. Um, and train travel, I just don't have that feeling about. I look forward to it. So you were asking about um, my journey. So one of the ones I really enjoyed that there's a chapter about was I interrailed for the first time, which I'd never done before. And I just kind of, well, I knew what I wanted to do, actually. I really wanted to go to Rijeka in Croatia because it was one of the two capitals of culture for 2020 um, and bless them because obviously it's such a big deal when a when a, a city gets that because they're often if you, if you don't know about the scheme it is amazing it's this kind of EU scheme where they pick often slightly underdog cities I would say you know and they're like have some money put on an amazing cultural program for a year get some good buildings in there that are going to have a legacy kind of heritage and it's, it's just such a wonderful thing. Um, and so Rijeka is Croatia's third city, but most people have never heard of it. I pretty much never heard of it. Um, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Um, but you should because it's wonderful. Um, and so I love going and supporting those cities when, when it's their year for capital culture, because I think it's a great it's a great way to introduce yourself to new places. So I was like, right, that's where I want to get to. How can I get there by train? Um, and as it turned out, it was it was a really good destination to reach because you can get a Eurostar to Paris, change trains. You can then get a train to Munich. I had like one stop in the middle, but very, very easy. Um, and then from Munich, so that all kind of takes you a, a day-ish. Um, I set up a very reasonable hour of like half past 10 in the morning as opposed to having to get to the airport in the middle of the night, yes. um, <laughs> which I hate. And then, yeah, just a, a couple of hours, kind of grab some dinner in Munich. And then there's an amazing sleeper train service, which runs overnight, um, that goes all the way to Rijeka. That's that's where it stops. It has one branch that goes to Rijeka and one that goes to Zagreb. Um, and it passes through um, Austria, Slovenia on the way. And it's amazing because it just means, right, you sleep overnight, hopefully, if you're lucky. <laughs> And then you wake up and you're, you're in Croatia, you're by the Adriatic Sea. I, and I think what I was really stunned by was, and it sounds funny to say the speed of it, because obviously it's not as fast as flying, but equally because you're, you're using the night time to travel, and I really recommend sleeper trains for this, it means that really it took 24 hours, but I set up on Friday and I was there in the middle of the city Saturday morning ready to explore. And to me, that just felt really amazing. Like, yes. how have I, how have I crossed like really far to get here? I come from London. The weather wasn't amazing. I got there. It was 30 degrees. It was beautiful. It was a really cool city, really interesting history and heritage because it had been owned by so many different countries and been part of so many different countries over, it, over its history and lifespan. So it had all this really interesting architecture. Then there was all the culture from the being capital of culture. And it, yeah, it was this really wonderful experience. And then on the way back, so I kind of rushed straight there. I then took time to have like a day in Munich um, and then a day in Paris. And I'd never been to Munich before. I probably wouldn't have chosen to go there if I was just flying um, because, you know, I don't think Brits often choose to go to Germany. Not all of us, but we've got other options. We, we sort of pass it by. And then I, I was astounded by how lovely a day that was. And it felt like this this bonus that only happened because I was taking the train. So all, yeah, all together, this really, really just profoundly gratifying experience as a traveler. Yeah. 
I guess one of the the barriers that people might um, sort of experience or, you know, the fact that it does take longer. So if we've got a week's holiday, do we really want two days of that to be taken up with or, you know, maybe even longer of, of traveling? But it sounds like if you're clever about it, you can do the bulk of your traveling kind of overnight or you might actually depending if, you, if you're somebody who's able to to work from home you can work from the train on your as you're traveling down there and then sort of start your holiday like did you find that you've really felt it was eating into your holiday time no I haven't felt like that at all actually part of it is just changing mindset and perspective yeah. um, and as lots of people who have been doing this a lot longer than I have will say is that you have to kind of see the journey as part of your holiday we don't see it like that when we're flying we really see it as this is a necessary evil to get have to from get through to this <laughs> yeah exactly teeth critted this will not be enjoyable but when you're traveling by by train or by ferry as well you sort of see that as part of your time away it's part of the experience as you said it's this lovely downtime that you can enjoy reading podcasts whatever else you want mm. to do um and I think you need to lean into that. But equally, I think we forget just because flying's quick, it's still, I find it always kind of eats up most of a day yes. at the end and the beginning of a holiday. You start with most of a day of, Ugh, and then you're there and the same on the way back. So if we're just taking that as a given, it's always going to feel like I've wasted a day traveling. Why not spend that? Traveling in a much nicer environment where you get to see the landscape, where you get to, if you're on a, on a ferry, you get to kind of be surrounded by the waves. I saw some dolphins on the ferry to Bilbao the other day. I mean, that's not something you get on a plane. It's really lovely. <laughs> yes. If you do something that's gone very wrong. <laughs> yeah, you'd be like, oh, no. <laughs> uh, now, I've had quite a few people say to me, you know, you see the journey as part of the um, the holiday and things. And I've always thought, I bet those people haven't got kids because, you know, traveling with kids is is always a little bit more stressful, I would say. Yeah. Um, but actually, somebody in, in my group, she's just uh, over the Easter holidays, she went away with her husband and their two children, who I think are both under about eight. And they I can't remember their exact week, but they definitely went down to Barcelona, did a bit around in Spain and then came back via Euro Disney and um, and then back again. And she said it was absolutely brilliant. Like. And I think, I guess there's the thing that kids have more, um, you have more space on a train. If you can bag a, you know, a four table, then you can get the games out. You can get the snacks out. They can walk up and down the train. So again, with that little shift in, um, and, and they get to see some of those countries that they're passing through, but it it is a mindset shift, isn't it? Of like, mm. oh, yeah. I mean, admittedly, I don't have children, so I can I can see why that would be a barrier. But you're right. I mean, I think whenever I see families on trains, they look a lot less frazzled than than families on a on a plane when they're really just, especially because a lot of the flying we do is on budget airlines. So there's not there is not space, and they're just crammed in, and it just looks to me it looks like a hideous experience, honestly. And then you did a lovely, almost like a city break, didn't you, to to Amsterdam? Yeah, yeah, that was really fun. So that was the um, the Stenerline ferry from is it Harwich? I never know how to pronounce it. Harwich. Harwich. Yeah, I know what you mean. <laughs> you know what I mean. I I suddenly you know when you like I've never said this out loud before, and now I'm extremely paranoid. <laughs> Edinburgh. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Do I sound like I'm an American? Um. Anyway, from that place <laughs> to the to the hook of Holland. And that, again, I, I thought it was great because it uses the time when you sleep. So it sets off in the evening. So I went after work. I didn't I didn't. So you're really off. lucky because you're already based in London, aren't you? So, um, yeah, yeah. You've got access to the Eurostar and all those sorts of things. Um, thinking about, you know, the logistics of getting into London. And, but then I guess it's that. OK, so we go into London and we have an afternoon or a day in London and then we travel on from there. It's trying to incorporate those stopovers and things and to use them I guess isn't it to factor them into your into your journey yeah exactly so I would I, I'm aware that I'm in a very fortunate position but yeah you see see it as an opportunity so you go okay let's have a really nice afternoon in the capital maybe what what do we want to go and see and do you yes know, you, can, you can make it something fun not just oh that's really irritating 
it's again yeah it's 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 changing ever so slightly your your mindset each step of the journey but then yes you so it goes over overnight and then you wake up and you're and you're there you're sort of you're ready to go and it's really well set up so where the ferry docks you immediately get on the train from there um it goes straight into I couldn't pronounce it all wrong she she damn she damn (laughs) somewhere Um, and then you and then you it's a very easy change there and you can from there go to Amsterdam to Rotterdam Hague you know wherever you want to go in the Netherlands and I went to Amsterdam because I'd sort of been thinking about over tourism and how we can visit places differently so I had this idea of well I've been to Amsterdam a lot and I've seen all the touristy stuff I thought, oh, it would be good to go and really explore different areas. And that is what the Amsterdam kind of tourist board are very keen for people to do is to start getting a bit more adventurous and not just sticking to the, the bit inside the canal ring where we all end up, but, you know, going further afield and seeing different parts of it. And so I was like, right, I'm going to, I'll hire a bike, I'll hop on, I'll, I'll get out there, I'll use, they've got these lovely maps called cycle sea tours you know like sightseeing but on your cycle yeah 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 and that was yeah that was literally just a weekend and again it it is because I'm based in London this was easier but because of those ferry times I didn't take any annual leave for that and I had a full weekend city break which again I think sometimes that's hard to sell to people because they're like oh we love our we love our weekends away and so it's finding ways of well how could you maybe still do that because it, it was great. I, I felt like I didn't, you know, it was better than, than flying in terms of the amount of time I had on the ground, I would say. Yeah. And, and as you say, the sort of the, the stress and all those sorts of things. But then you're saying that um, it was really nicely set up and where the ferry landed and things. But you had quite a different experience, didn't you, when you tried to do your, your long, didn't you set yourself the challenge to try and see how far you could go without or how far, how far away you could get? And that reminded me, I don't know if you saw it when it was on, but the BBC did a race around the world. Did I you see that? that oh, my I God, love I loved it. So for anyone who didn't see it, these people, it was like couples. So they could either be, you know, a husband and wife or partners or whatever. But it was also like a dad and a son or friends or whatever. And they had. I think it wasn't it the price of a return ticket so for the first series. It was the price of a return ticket to to. Singapore I think yeah um a return air flight and that's all they had and they had to get there overland but they weren't allowed their phones were they so they couldn't just google everything and they you know not even like google translate and stuff like that but oh it was so and they had to do you know it was the first one to get there but I, I remember saying to my husband I would love to do that but without the time constraint. So to have a year to do exactly the same thing and really take your time doing it. But oh my God, they got there, didn't they? From London to Singapore, overland in, yeah, it was absolutely brilliant. So so you didn't go quite that far, but you decided you wanted to see how far you could get without having to take a plane, didn't you? Yeah, and I mean, sadly, I was hampered by um, coronavirus because the original plan had been to get a cargo ship to over to the US um, from Liverpool, and it kind of calls in it at, well, North America. So it goes to Nova Scotia and Canada first and then kind of goes down the coast, New York, Baltimore. I'd be terrified to do that. How would you even arrange it? Do you just rock up like some kind of stowaway, at a, you know, and just go, all right, go, I've got any space. Do you know, like, I don't know. Is there somewhere you can sleep or are you just in a sort of heap on the ground? <laughs> like, it just sounds like you're just, I don't know, <laughs> curled up in a tyre somewhere. You do, you do get a little room. But it, it's so trying to book it. So you do book it beforehand. Um, but it, it, you imagine the exact opposite of the ease of booking a flight. <laughs> it's, just, it's just back and forth emails with some random dude who's like, how about this? And you're like, I, on, I had an email exchange with about 30 emails with this man and then and gave him some money. Um, <laughs> And I was like, okay, great. And then it, all of them got cancelled, um, essentially, because that well, the ships, the shipping companies were still going, but they they weren't allowed to take passengers, and I think they're still not allowed to for that route. So I just had to kind of go, okay, that's not going to happen. Really disappointed because I really I was so intrigued to find out what that would be like um, because it's I think it's kind of ten days at sea or something each way, like it's quite a long time. Can I say that my prediction would be pretty miserable? But I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> it's a 
wonderful digital detox. You find yes. yourself on the waves. <laughs> I don't know. But anyway, so once the, the, the kai, they put the kibosh on that, I was like, right, okay, what can I do within the, the travel restrictions that we have? I'd still like to get to another continent. Um, and the sort of simplest thing seemed to be um, at that point, you could still you could go to Morocco in the time that I was looking. In normal times, that is a very simple journey because what you would do is you'd get to the south of Spain and then you'd get a really quick ferry across from there. It takes about 90 minutes. But at the time I was looking, you they had completely closed off the sea border between Spain and Morocco. And they were saying it was because of the pandemic. Actually, it's much more political than that. It's about migrants. And so they both almost were punishing each other because you can fly between the two. It was just the sea border that was like, no, no, no. So I was like, oh, okay, what else can I do? Oh, it turns out you can get a ferry from Marseille instead in France. Um, but that is considerably longer. That's more like, what was it 40 48 hours something like that and it's a couple of days at sea and I was like right okay book that great really really tricky navigating in French sort of the all the restrictions and what I needed to have in order to get into the country that was a whole other minefield um but what was crazy about that was so um as I've described in the book rocking up to the port with my very basic school girlfriend, she's very GCSE, finding out that I've been told to just go to completely the wrong place because in normal times they would have, I suppose, more foot passengers and they process them in this one bit they told me to get to. And then I presume you'd get a coach over to where the ship is. Anyway, I was the only foot passenger as it turned out for this entire ferry. They thought I was completely mad. They were like, who is this weird English woman? Why is she here? had to get kind of convinced this dock worker to give me a lift round because it was honestly it would have taken me like an hour and a half to walk to the bit where the ship was and yeah it just it felt it felt very unlike anything I'd ever experienced because (laughs) I'm not I I suppose I'm not normally that adventurous a traveler or I wasn't before this book and I'm also a travel journalist so I think for a long time I've had such a big amount of hand-holding when I go on yes they're often press trips so what happens is it's all everything's organized for you it's all sorted out you just get sent your itinerary and your plane ticket there's a lovely PR who's like oh Helen come over here tells you where to go and so it was suddenly being confronted with like okay I need to know what I'm doing and try and sort things out and use my basic language to navigate and I suppose yeah it was obviously nothing like as as um, maverick as that race across the world program but for me, it gave me that little spark, that little feeling of, I guess, what travel used to be, which it feels a bit more intrepid. It feels a bit more exciting. And like, it's an adventure you're embarking upon. And not quite sterile now, thing. travel, isn't it? It's quite, yeah, yeah, managed and sterile. And which, you know, to, to some extent is nice because, you know, you know exactly what to expect. There's none of the, you know, it's very convenient. There's none of the stress. But as you say, that like sense of, I'm an adventurer I don't know that yeah there's something about yeah yeah I think yeah ex- I think sterile is totally the word and it has real real positives but I think what it also does is that it does stop you from interacting with people and talking to people because you don't have to and there's that's one of, of the things I think that puts me off maybe train travel like I can very anonymously book a plane ticket online I don't have to speak to anybody I don't have to understand the language you know and and that when I even when I get to the other end they're probably all going to speak English they're going to point me in the direction of the taxi or the hotel bus or whatever I you know I won't have to interact I won't have to be made to feel uncomfortable I won't have to people laughing at me because I can't speak the language and I don't know where I'm going whereas what you're describing is making is is a big step out of well certainly out of my comfort zone and I don't know if it is is for a lot of other people and I wonder if that's another barrier that's that sort of stops us yeah and it I mean it was for me as well to be quite honest um but I was really struck by I don't know it sounds a bit twee but but how much more I got out of it from from doing that and from experiencing things a little bit different and it was you know it wasn't even that um adventurous compared to things a lot of people do but even pushing it that bit and going okay I'm always I'm always slightly embarrassed about how bad my French is but I have enough that I can get by and I can make myself understood and I can you know 
even that was really it felt really challenging but in a, in an exciting way in a in a way that I came back from that trip and I I felt kind of like really empowered and like oh I, I can do things you know I can yeah. travel alone as a woman in a country that sometimes people can be a bit funny about oh you shouldn't go to Morocco by yourself as a woman yes. and I hate being told that anyway that makes me feel very stubborn and annoyed but <laughs> even know, more determined to go <laughs> exactly how dare you tell me what to do <laughs> And I really did feel pretty safe there for the most part. You know, you get a lot of catcalling, but you just learn to tune it out. But yeah, I think I think I it really it made me feel resilient and it made me feel very different to just doing, yeah, as you say, the sterile, book everything, don't have to rely on talking to anyone else, don't don't have to really engage with the yes. with the place that you go to in any meaningful capacity. And if you just want to fly and flop and you you want to relax, I have nothing against that. I mean, I go to Mallorca for that very reason. I, I love that. But I think if, if we're talking about travel also being a part of broadening our horizons and connecting with other cultures and really, really, yeah, bridging the gap, I suppose, between between differences, because that's the thing that I think travel does really well. And that's why I don't I would never tell people to stop traveling because I think it's important. It makes us outward looking and better people. And actually, um, I mean, tourism has a lot of um, benefits, doesn't it, for a lot of places. So um, I don't know if you've spoken to Vicky Smith. She runs a, a sustainable travel agency called Earth Changes, and, and she was on the podcast a little while ago now. And, you know, she's very passionate about the idea of, of kind of travel and tourism as a force for good and how actually when done right, it brings huge benefits to um, to countries, to people, to locations. Um, the problem that we've that we've got that we seem to have done with everything is this sort of over development of it. That the the way we approach it, that very sort of fast, cheap, you know, that sort of thing, and that it's it's and again in the same way that we have that sort of thoughtless consumption of fashion or cheap food or whatever it might be that that we've almost sort of got that with cheap flights and and holidays and things as well. And and it's trying to take a step back do it differently slow it down do it more thoughtfully and as you say like properly engage with it but that's almost the the like the the scary bit maybe and I'm so relieved to sort of hear you say this was a challenge for me as well because I think it's really easy to feel like Helen's a travel journalist she must be so used to traveling on her own she must be one of these real independent strong feisty women and I'm sure you probably are but do you know the fact that you were still like this was a, a like I, I felt intimidated by this as well but I still did it and actually I, I loved it that's quite reassuring <laughs> yeah I'm definitely on the the more meek camp the more <laughs> I'm used yeah used to having my hand held um so I mean I'm sure everybody is going to ask you this have you flown since no no so I haven't taken a flight since um when was it I think November 2019 was my last flight and that's quite a big one because in fact that was to Singapore that's see a friend um and then uh yeah I took the pledge in 2020 not to fly felt like that was a bit of a cheat year took it again last year had taken it again this year so I definitely won't be flighting I definitely won't be (laughs) flying in 2022 and I am very seriously considering signing up again next year because I still feel well, do you know what? It's because I'm having I'm having fun. And you're still able to do your job. You're still able yeah. to fulfill all the things that your bosses want you to do. And yeah, it's I'll admit what what is difficult or what I I struggle with is that I get sent um again, I'm very lucky, I get sent lots of invites to go on lots of lovely trips. And 99.99999% of them, even if they are very close to us in Europe, will be like we'll we'll cover the flights I never get offered trips by train that bugs me especially it's often the slant of the trip will be sustainable insert so it's all about how sustainable this destination is and how how they're excited about getting more green and then there's always flights and I would really like to see that change because it means I can't accept most of the invitations for that well I can't go on that trip Oh well. So have, have you ever replied and gone, "That's great. Um, I, my plan would be to hop on Eurostar. Will you cover that, even though it might be five times more expensive or whatever that might you know?" Have you have you been able to do that? And what's the response been if you have? 
Um, I haven't done it so far, actually, but I think I will start doing it. If it's something I, I'm like, oh, that sounds like a great trip. Yes. Um, I'll start saying, but this is what I need. Can you, yeah. can you incorporate that? And yes, just, just to see what the answer is, because I think we need to be start leading from the front in the travel industry if we're yes. writing about it. Um, I certainly want to be setting a better example. I'm not saying that um, everyone will be able to follow it in the same way, but you know, I want to practice what I preach and not just mm. go back to like, oh, well, that's a nice project I did. Yes. On I go on to my next flight. Well, it's a bit like when um, sort of we we got started, we, d- we did a year buying nothing new um, sort of as a family with the kids. And then everyone was like, what are you going to buy now? And it's like, I can't learn everything that I learned and go, you know, do all of that. And then just kind of go back to pretend, pack it all away and, and go away again. And, and, and it sounds like it might be similar for you, but it also sounds like you're kind of taking it a year at a time, a bit like, you know, um, a reformed alcoholic or whatever, you know, um, when, yeah. um, what, what do you, or have, I guess you must've thought about it, but sort of medium to longer term, what do you think your attitude to flying will be? So I think barring anything extreme happening, um, my, my new kind of mindset will be maybe once every few years, maybe once every three years, something like that, I will allow myself a, a flight, but it will be very, very kind of thoughtfully planned out. Yes. Where do I want to go? What do I want to do when I'm there? How do I think this will be beneficial for the destination in yeah. terms of how I spend my money? And it and it will be very intentional. And I don't and I think it would be long haul because I don't think I would ever now get a flight to somewhere I could get trains to okay. in yeah. Europe because yeah. I would I would feel to I would feel flick scam for that yeah <laughs> um, and, and that's really interesting because there's um a project that started at the beginning of this year called the jump and they've identified the sort of six most impactful things we can do as, as individuals to, to reduce emissions and their recommendations if you like or the, the numbers they've crunched for flying for in order for flying to be sustainable and for everybody around the world to be able to fly and um, the recommendation is one flight one short haul flight every three years and I think on one long haul flight every seven years um, so obviously, as we said, only 10% of the population fly at the moment. So, um, but that's quite interesting. It's so, and, and he was saying he'd had a conversation with his sort of younger 19 year old sister who was like, oh God, you're telling me I can't fly. And that's really mean because you've had your time flying and seen the world and stuff. And he's like, no, 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 you can see every corner of the world, every continent of the world in your lifetime, but a bit more slowly, do you know, like more thoughtfully, more consciously, you know, and uh, yeah, I thought, and I know for a lot of people that will feel like a big ask, but actually speaking to you as someone who, I mean, how much, give us an idea, how many flights were you taking in, in 2019? Do you know? Yeah. So, I mean, one of the reasons I decided to do it is that was the most flight heavy year I think I'd ever had. Well, especially when, so I decided about halfway through the year and I calculated how many flights and it was in under six months I had taken 24 flights so it was almost the equivalent of one flight a week which is insane it's insane and I hadn't even so before I wrote that feature and talked to the flight free campaigners I hadn't thought about it at all and that was what was so shocking to me I just had totally disconnected my own actions with the fact I was very excited about all the climate change action that was happening in the Mm. protests and stuff and I'd never put it together. And then suddenly I was like, I felt a bit sick. I just thought, oh my gosh, like, what's wrong with me? <laughs> Why have I never connected these dots before? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's huge. Um, and then the the only other, th- not the only other thing, there's loads of things I want to ask you, but um, now I, the copy of the book I got was the sort of pre-proper print um, one. So it was missing. What you've done for each journey is calculate what your carbon emissions were traveling not by plane and what it would have been by train and then there was a couple of them you you obviously didn't have the stats for at the time that that this one was printed and you've added it all up at the end so this feels like a big reveal moment for me can you remember this is again you should I should have given you a chance to get your crib sheet can you remember what the carbon saving was of of the trips that you took by not taking a plane I can't remember it's on my head so I'm just opening my pdf of the book so I can give you an accurate number I thought that was a really nice sort of way of looking at it and you know actually comparing the figures and and looking at the um, emissions and stuff I thought it was I was like oh that's a really good idea I like that so total carbon emissions say for all flight free journeys 
was 785.3 kilograms of CO2. Wow. So that's, so yeah. Bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you, and I would imagine in, in a normal, again, sort of air quotes year for you, if you were doing like pretty much a flight a week, uh, I don't know how sustainable that would have been to try and do it um, not flying. But yeah, that's a big old chunk of big old chunk of carbon that you've saved and yet still been able to fulfill your role as a travel editor and you know have all those those wonderful experiences any top tips then for people wanting to embrace this oh um so I think the biggest one is what we've said really is the kind of change your change your mindset and your perspective so see the journey as part of your holiday and really Think about, you know, what do you want to get out of travel? If it's just this kind of feeling of new experiences, you don't have to go as far as you think to get that. I think we've got this idea of you have to go really far away for something to feel exotic and fresh and new. And that isn't true. I mean, I think the pandemic really showed us that when you're when you have everything stripped back. I remember when going for a coffee with a friend in a park felt like the height of excitement I mean you're just buzzing from that yeah so (laughs) part of it's just your expectation and and trying to see the new in everything and that can be quite places quite near you in the UK even you don't need to go abroad um I think to get that actually that's Um, a really good point I mean we live um not far away from Bath and yet have probably never done all the touristy things in Bath, have never taken the bus tour around Bath and done the actual Raven Bath and all that, because you just sort of like, oh, it's Bath, isn't it? But um, yeah, trying to, and I remember I was at uni in London and, and just before we graduated, me and my friend, we went and properly did all the proper touristy things, because you just don't, when you live near a place, you take it for granted, don't you, and don't do it. So yeah, maybe having, I mean, people are probably sick to the back teeth of, you know, the whole staycation thing and, you know, make a holiday from home, but um <laughs> Yeah, probably. But yeah, exactly. You can you can find a new way of looking at your your surroundings, can't you? And from a very practical perspective, um, as many people that travel a lot by train in Europe will tell you, um, there's an amazing website called seat61.com um, set up by Mark Smith, the man in seat61. And honestly, there is nothing like it in terms of a resource for booking, booking trains. So he kind of puts together itineraries of everywhere you could want to get to from the UK and he tells you how to do it where to book it how much it's going to cost you even like down to where you should have your lunch because you're you're stopping in Barcelona for a couple of hours it's it's fantastic so that's that's I think that's another thing that sort of scares me slightly is thinking sometimes I find it stressful enough just trying to book a train between here and here in London and I'm going to have to go on this website and it's going to be in a language I don't understand. And, you know, uh, so the fact that there is a, a resource like that, that everybody I've spoken to has has recommended. I mean, what a guy to have yeah. put all that together. Yeah, he's my he's my hero now. <laughs> what a rock star. Yeah. I interviewed him from the book and I by that I'd heard so much about him that I honestly felt a little bit starstruck. You're a bit starstruck, like, yeah. <laughs> I was meeting an A-lister. I was like, oh my gosh, there he is riding through the station (laughs) yeah oh amazing um brilliant so the book by the time this this podcast comes out the book will be out zero altitude how I learned to fly less and travel more by Helen Coffey I yeah I can't say enough how much I loved it and it's available everywhere you can buy books presumably yes all the book places all all good airports yeah (laughs) (laughs) imagine (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> oh absolutely wonderful to speak to you thank you so much for um taking the time to do it and thank you for you know for doing it and putting all that I say all that effort into the traveling but there was a lot of, there's a lot of research that's gone into like I said the bits around um you know sustainable aviation in air quotes and all those different things as well it, it genuinely is um, a real joy to read thank you so much thank you been listening to Sustainable-ish, you wonderful sack of loveliness, with me, Jen Gale. Hopefully we've fired some neurons and we've got the old grey matter thinking about what changes you can make in your life this week to live that little bit more sustainably. Do let me know what that is. I love to hear about the changes that people are making, big or small, every single one counts. If you've enjoyed the show, and I hope you have, 
do hop over to iTunes to leave a comment or a review and then the bots at iTunes will cotton on to just how awesome it is and it will show up in more people's feeds. Or at least I think that's how it works. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next time.